Um, I'm a huge podcast fan. Four Stanford <laughs> students here uh, who are interested in politics, pay attention to politics, and want to talk about politics with you. We're, we're casual people who are having a casual conversation about politics. We're not, like, pundits. We're not journalists. Overall, we probably uh, represent the broader Stanford community pretty well. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Stanford Politics Podcast. I'm Rip Livingston. I'm Bob Kakar. And I'm Harrison Braunfeld. Great episode for you today, guys. We're going to go over some top news stories that each of us have from the past little while since we last dropped an episode. We had a great conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, who's a congressman representing Southern California and is the ranking member of the House Intel Committee, obviously a very relevant committee these days um, in light of everything. Really great conversation with him. So we'll talk a little bit about that and then uh, have that for you towards the end of the show. How are you guys doing? Good. Nice break. Great break. (laughs) Winding up that quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the news, the news. So my top story was um, being from Alabama, it felt like it would be criminal to do anything other than Roy Moore. Um, And just, I mean, first, I mean, well, I mean, Roy Moore is a story in in and of himself, but obviously the most significant story, which by now has been very thoroughly reported, uh, we're kind of late to the game on this, though, is his the allegations of his sexual advances um, on, on several underage girls and general sexual misconduct, uh, pedophilia, to put a more specific word on it, um, and uh, as a sort of uh, subsequent news story, the fact that the Alabama Senate seat is in play for Democrats, which is uh, pretty nutty, so... Yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about that yeah, as non-Alabamians? <laughs> I think I, I was going through Twitter today and, and someone was talking about how like people in Alabama can vote however they want, but the rest of the country is going to judge them however they want if they elect Roy Moore. Um, and I think I, I think for me, at least, the, the fact that he's even still like in the race and there's even yeah, still a chance yeah. that he could win is, is sad and and. I mean, I I know that there are lots of good people yeah. in Alabama. Well, not like, even just a chance that he can win, but he's still the favorite. Yeah, you know? there's a, I mean, a very <laughs> real chance that he wins, and like it, I, I don't know. It, it like it almost shakes my faith in in democracy sometimes that, you know, people people are really like putting party over country, party over just like basic human decency at this point. Yeah, for sure. I don't know, Avni, what do you think? Uh, same boat, honestly. Like um, when I heard that, like. I would say, like, five, ten years ago, like, a scandal like this would just, like, absolutely blow up and, like, a, a candidate's reputation would be destroyed. But as we saw, Donald Trump was accused of grabbing women by certain parts, and he's our president. So yeah, I don't think the word sexual assault mean what they used to mean in politics anymore, at yeah. least. I just wish I could be home to, like... I mean, you know, this sounds stupid, but take the temperature of like, I don't know, hear the dialogue, hear what's going on. Um, I don't know. I have a hard time sort of getting a feel for at least the people that I know at home who demographically aren't super representative of the entire state. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just it's very weird to me. And, 
you know, a lot of there's especially in Birmingham, which is relatively relatively metropolitan place in the state. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about how the city can't grow unless young people move back and contribute to the city and contribute to its growth. And I just think, you know, uh, how can you expect someone like me or like any other young person who uh, would potentially move back to the state to go back to a place that's going to elect someone like Roy Moore, you know? So I don't know. I mean, a lot of the polling has Doug Jones, who is this like, I mean, it's it's funny to me, too, because I feel like if you drew up a political candidate, Democrat or Republican, you it, like there was ideal. You know what I mean? Like ideal for running for office. You'd come up with Doug Jones. Oh, yeah. Like he's a former prosecutor. He put the 16th Street Baptist Church bombers in jail. Amazing. He there is there have been no scandals around right. oh, like he's, he's zero scandals. Boring. Yeah, he's just this boring <laughs> like, Southern man like who wants to do good. <laughs> just like wants to help people out, you know? Yeah. And uh just the fact that he's I mean if he was a Republican, he would blow Roy Moore out of the freaking water. Right. But, you know, I don't know. It's it's uh we'll see. Some of the po- the polling has been uh, recently, especially, uh, there have been a lot of polls that have I've seen on Twitter where, um, you know, sort of show that the news cycle has moved past the more scandals and that yeah, he's rebounding as a result of that, which is pretty devastating. Uh, I just so you know, I don't know. We'll see. It's and I think some of the like logical and ethical like loops that Republicans are jumping through to justify like still voting for Roy Moore. I don't know. To me, it, it's just. It just feels sort of disgusting. You know, people are like, oh, you know, Mary was underage when she gave birth to Jesus. So, like, it's okay. You know, yeah. like, like, oh, my God. At, at what point, you know, that, that's a fringe. That aside. guy's in that job. But, <laughs> but, 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 but like, I don't know. It, it, it's just like, at what point do you acknowledge that, like, this member of your party is not a good person, you know? And it's, it, yeah. it shouldn't be about politics. I will say, like, I, I will say in all fairness that Mitch McConnell firmly condemned Roy Moore. Um, I mean, not that he couldn't do more, but I like. The, the, I think the plurality of visible Republicans have not chosen to support him. I mean, obviously, the president, who is a Republican, has very implicitly supported him, right. which is something in and of itself. But I think it is worth giving. You know, I mean, that's true. Give credit. Give credit, credit to where it's due. due. I was relatively pleased with the number of Republicans, especially in the Senate, who are basically like, "Don't elect this guy." Yeah. Um, it also puts Senate Republicans in a difficult position because if he is elected, a lot of them have called for like his removal from the Senate, right? Which would it sort of sets up this like divide between the establishment Republicans in the Senate and then the like right. grassroots Donald Trump right. Steve Bannon movement. Well, we have to see for. if they'll if they'll put their money where their mouth is there right. too. But then right. I heard like Susan Collins this morning, I think said. Um, that there isn't constitutional grounds to not seat him in the Senate, which is something that Mitch McConnell talked about doing. I don't really know anything about that process, so I can't speak to that. But. Is he not being tried? Is for the is the case not going further? Like, is it not considered like sexual assault? I think the statute of limitations is up on all of the allegations, oh. just because they right. happened thirty years ago. Got so there's it. no there's no like formal trial about it, um, but that doesn't mean that he didn't do it and that he's right. not. So yeah. They're also, I think, worth noting is the the Washington Post story a couple of days ago about the woman uh, from Project Veritas who pretended uh, to like 
have sexual assault allegations against Roy Moore. Yeah, that was pretty nutty. Yeah, and try and, like, <laughs> catch the paper messing up by, like, printing her false allegations. But then the paper found all these holes in her story and then was like, we can't report this. So I just want to, like, shout out quality journalism. Yeah. Good for Real the Washington good. Post. Yeah. So sort of segueing off of that, my biggest news story of the past couple of weeks, um, I think has just been all of the, the major men in politics and in the media uh, who we've seen... Uh, you know, allegations of sexual assault come out against them and we've seen them being forced to resign or quit their jobs or, you know, all sorts of things. I think Al Franken was a big one for me, but we've, you know, as of recording this, Matt Lauer's lost his job at NBC. Yeah, big Louis C.K., um, John Lasseter of Pixar, you know, it's... it's Charlie Rose. Yeah. Uh, of course, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Garrison Keillor. Uh, you know, it's just... Everyone, I think... It's yeah. a bloodbath. It's, yeah. It's... Uh... So I think this. So I think this is a good discussion we could have. Do you guys think Al Franken should resign? One hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Wow. There's the wow. <laughs> I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. And I asked. We have a really great interview, by the way, coming out with soon with uh, Patty Solis Doyle, um, who managed Hillary Clinton's '08 campaign for the first year of it. Uh, and I asked her this, and what she had to say was really interesting. So tune in for that. But um, you know, I think there's like a spectrum that you have to compare these things on, right? I mean, you can't say, argue that Harvey Weinstein and the allegations against Al Franken are equivalent. I mean, they're, right. but, um, yeah, I think, I, th- I think Al Franken should resign. But I think there's, there's a difference between, you know, for example, I think what Roy Moore allegedly did, you know, with underage women, it, it seems to be for some reason more severe than some of the stuff that's happened to women who are of age, which seems more severe than, oh, you know, sexual harassment versus assault. But right. I still think there's a line, and any of that stuff is not becoming of a U.S. senator, right? right? Or, or a CEO or a major movie mogul. And I think, I think especially for the Democrats, not only is it morally the right thing to do to just say, there are any allegations against you, you should not be a senator, but I also think it's the politically smart thing to do, right? Totally right. Agree. To draw a hard line, because if with any wavering on Al Franken, that just opens the door for Republicans to further justify electing Roy Moore. Totally. Um, and I think, especially with Al Franken, you know, if he resigns, it, there's a Democratic governor who will appoint a replacement, and then I think in 18, a Minnesota uh, will likely elect a new Democrat. So it's it's yeah. not like a risky seat, and it lets the Democrats... You know, politically they're safe, but morally they can take the high ground and and say that this is unacceptable because it is. I totally agree. And use yeah. that legitimacy exactly yeah. to point out what's wrong with Roy Moore and other um, Republicans. There's yeah. also I forget his name in the in the House. I think he's the longest serving member of the House. John Conyers. Yeah. Um, their allegations. Well, the allegations against him are serious business. Yes. Yeah. And I think today Nancy Pelosi I don't think I called said, for him to was, resign. Oh, she did. Okay. I was going to bring up when she gave an interview uh, a few days ago where she totally like equivocated with him and was. Yeah. I think she's come around as like, new stuff. Appalling. Is <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's why, like, I think that, you know, is an example of like Democrats not. They We need to be stronger on this and, and not sort of equivocate or waver because it, it just opens the door for more of this down the road. Mm hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not a partisan yeah. issue. Yeah. Hard line. Yeah, especially like when you're in like the, that position of power where you're making laws for these people. If you like show in any way that you believe some of your constituents are less worthy than others or like you treat them differently, like that's when things just get dangerous. Yeah. And so that's why I would say like for political figures, it's even like a higher bar than like I would say like m- media moguls yeah. right right i mean yeah I, I agree i mean and you know someone like roy moore i mean 
you know, when that happened, could have arguably been prosecuted for what he did, which is, you know, ironic considering he was a prosecutor himself. Right. Exactly. Um, but, you know, someone like Al Franken maybe wouldn't have been prosecuted. But again, you know, it's not, we're not talking about being convicted in a court of law. We're talking about being elected to the United States Senate. Exactly. Right. Um, which are, you know, two different things, separate, different sets of standards. I think someone, I don't remember who this was, and a lot of people have probably said this, but um, I think it was someone related to the Roy Moore race. Uh, was basically saying, look, you know, whether or not the allegations are true against Roy Moore, I don't know. Our country is innocent until proven guilty, uh, but uh, you know, we don't have a rule that says elected until proven guilty. Right. You know, very different sets very of standards true. you have to apply. So, so Al Franken, if you're listening, resign. Team Stanford <laughs> Politics podcast says you got to go. Get out. But if if Adios. you do resign and then you have a lot of free time, we'd love to interview you. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so people talk about how, like, for for women to come forward and talk about, like, sexual assault, they need that sort of, like, security and, like, legitimacy that they're going to be believed. And the fact that it took Harvey Weinstein's allegations to be taken seriously for all of this stuff to come out is, like, really, really fascinating to me. Yeah. I think it's it's sad that we, like, have to have this, this sort yeah. of culture, but it's really positive that right now we're in a moment where lots of women feel comfortable and and men you know with Kevin Spacey there were a lot of men who talked about being yeah, right yeah just that we we have a culture right now where victims feel really comfortable talking about and it and they're believed yeah. and w- when they do talk about it and the perpetrators are actually punished it's not just like oh this person did something but we're kind of like sweep it under the rug right it's like no you're gonna be yeah fired the weirdest thing to me though is just the dichotomy between you know I mean look at look at the corporate I mean you know media and Hollywood is the most Salient example, obviously, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, etc. You know, those people have been held accountable for their actions to the they lost their jobs, their their yeah. careers are over. Right. You know, um, and then look at our politicians who right. Al Franken's still in office. Donald Trump was elected president after the allegations. Um, you know, not even allegations. Donald Trump like owned up to right, right. I mean, I That's he, a great he point. Owned up to the Access Hollywood tape. He didn't own yeah. up to any like. Well, I mean, and it was on tape. It wasn't yeah. even like you know women. I mean. It's not even like women came forward and accused him of things. Which it's, which they did. Which, which the, yeah, which they also well. did. But it's but, like yeah, there's a recording. Uh, yeah, of I mean him. it was like you know, um, but I mean Roy Moore is you know poised to at least according to the best data we have probably win a Senate race in Alabama. Um, I hope you've got your absentee ballot. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, Already okay. done and done. <laughs> I also think this whole, uh, just this whole culture and this whole conversation sheds like an interesting light looking back on Bill Clinton. I think that there was an op-ed in the New York Times sort of reflecting on how we treated sexual assault back then and how, you know, in the 90s, like the, the women's movement and the feminist movement were so tied to the Democratic Party that like just because Bill Clinton was a Democrat, we sort of right. ignored a lot of his sexual misconduct. And I think in the 2016 election, it was sort of difficult to talk about this issue because it sort of People saw it as like delegitimizing Hillary Clinton if you sort of talk too much about Bill Clinton's impropriety. But I think now we're we're having like a a really real conversation right. about what Bill Clinton did, and and I think he's going to be viewed in a, a far less positive light, right? Um, yeah. And probably for the better. I, I think you know he there were a lot of very like serious accusations against him, um, and even even with the whole like Monica Lewinsky thing, it it was consensual, but the sort of power dynamics at play there with the president right. of the United States and an intern. I think, you know, it's hard to... Right. And she's really so much consent. younger than him. Yeah. And, and just her stature was so much less. Like, 
I, I think it's interesting the sort of way we're going to look back on history now. Right. I think there are allegations against George H.W. Bush as well mm-hmm. recently. Yeah. Yeah. And not to make excessive plugs, but uh, it's funny you bring that up because Patty Doyle and I talked about that, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. she worked in the Clinton White House for both terms. Um, she basically worked for Hillary Clinton from 92 when the Clintons ran for the first time until she uh, left her campaign in early 2008. But um, we had a really great conversation about how she kind of reckons with that as a woman who partook in, you know, maybe the defense of Bill Clinton during that time. So I thought what she had to say was really interesting. Um, so stay, stay tuned. Keep stay tuned. Yeah, we're not giving anything away here. Yeah. My story of the week, I guess not just of this week, it's of the last couple weeks. Um, it's the new tax bill. Woo. <laughs> Woohoo. So exciting. <laughs> what is the, the hashtag Democrats using? I think it's GOP tax scam. They're not even calling it a bill anymore, just a scam. I haven't seen that, but... Yeah, I haven't seen that either. I don't have Twitter, but... um. <laughs> A, po- a political uh, commentator who does Twitter. <laughs> the only one left. <laughs> Should we just plug our Twitter handle? Make you feel left out. At Rip underscore Livingston. I also tweet a lot of random kind of dumb stuff. Uh, we go vote in my most recent poll about black iced coffee. I don't think if I you, voted uh, in that. It's a divisive issue, guys. <laughs> Listeners, please go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back on to taxes. Yeah. Well, we did that. <laughs> Even more fun than iced coffee. So, um, if you don't know already, uh, there's a big tax bill that's trying to get passed through. And if you don't know, shame on you. (laughs) Read more news. The Senate right now. Um, Pretty much, it involves a lot of big tax cuts for corporations, people with higher incomes. It's supposed to, quote-unquote, simplify the tax bracket by making... Um, by decreasing the the number of tax brackets there are and sort of like consolidating that, which ends up with the people with very high incomes having to pay significantly less taxes and people with very low incomes paying being put into like a larger tax bracket than they normally would be. Um, it actually, and I guess the, the main issue with the bill right now is that the Joint Committee on Taxation said that the tax bill would actually add $1 trillion to the budget deficit over the next decade. Wow. Even accounting for like the extra economic growth that like tax cuts are supposed to have, there will still be $1 trillion added to the deficit, which is sort of a big problem. Um, and that's this deficit is sort of what's causing um, backup in the Senate right now. So... Right now, Republicans don't really know what to do about it. Um, it's not passing right now. Um, I think as of now, though, they have the votes, don't they? Yeah, but they said that, like, they're... I know John McCain came out pro. John McCain yeah. is, but then Susan Collins... She mm-hmm. still have reservations. ...is still having reservations. And a lot of other people are, yeah, just, like, worried about the bill moving forward. Right. As of this recording, I know... They're supposed to vote on the bill tonight, but it's right. been pushed it was, back till tomorrow morning. Back. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I was about to say. Interesting yeah. sort of aside, but the New York Times opinion section was incredibly vocal against this bill and was actually like tweeting and Facebooking, like, here are the numbers to call your senators wow. and like complain against this bill. I didn't see that. Yeah. And then I saw a lot of comments from other journalists about how this is like a weird line like, effectively, the New York Times opinion section is, like, acting like a super PAC right now. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I thought that was very interesting. And we're, we're seeing people who don't normally weigh in on this kind of stuff weigh in. Yeah. 
But this this bill has a ton of absurd provisions. There's like a, I think it's like a four billion dollar, in total, it's cutting like four billion dollars so that you can get a like tax break for your private jets. Um, you know, there's all sorts of like right. weird, weird tax cuts for the wealthy that just like seem absurd. Right. Yeah. I have a so interesting discussion topic that's pertinent to us. What do you guys think about taxing university endowments? I'm a huge fan. Really? I think. Yeah, I think Why? Stanford University has what twenty something billion dollars. Close in to thirty, pushing yeah, 30, thirty billion. Yeah, oh the, my God. billion with a B. <laughs> and and Stanford University oh gets tax credits for being an educational institution, right? So they don't pay property taxes, despite the fact that they own a, you know a ton of incredibly valuable land in the heart of Silicon Valley. I think absolutely, we we should be taxing university endowments, even if you set the bar like, if your endowment's over ten billion dollars, we're going to tax it. Right. That to me, you know, that you... I think I just, I I just am not convinced that we need to. You know what I mean? But I, feel I like just we... I, you just can't convince me until you're you're doing a lot of you're taxing a lot of other stuff that we don't currently tax. Example: private jets. Um, or I mean, you know, the specific private jet provision. I, and I'm not like blanket. We don't private tax private jets, but. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I mean, a lot of really, really important stuff comes from the universities who would fall within that category: Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, Yale. But it's all probably, the Ivy League schools. I, I would guess uh, there's not more than than forty universities. Probably so. With endowments over ten billion, and I, I think, I don't think you should tax university endowments so that you can then give tax cuts to wealthy Americans. Right. Right. I think. But that, isn't that what's happening? That's what's happening, and yeah. and I think that's wrong. But I think, okay, yeah, I as its own that. sort of policy. You know, if I agreed with the rest of the tax bill and you needed more revenue, I think that that's, you know, the university, Stanford should not be in the business of making money. That's, you know, they're an educational institution. But Stanford doesn't make money. It's not for profit. But they have a $30 billion endowment. Well, what does it pay for? What does the returns the endowment pay for? I mean, I know. I mean, I mean I'm asking a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, it gives, you know, financial aid for students who but can't they, afford to come. We have the best financial don't... aid program in the country, hands down. We that's true. fund millions and millions and millions of dollars of research. We also get a lot of government money to help fund that research. But even right. even then, do we need $30 billion, right? That just seems – most of it, it's – it's. I think someone in, in the New York Times a couple of years ago described it as a hedge fund with a university attached on the side. And I think that that's a pretty like apt description, that the focus should not be on this, this huge pile of money. I think a $10 billion endowment would be more than fine. For Stanford and and other comparable institutions, but we couldn't we couldn't do what we do here if we didn't have thirty billion in the bank. I think like I don't think nonprofits should be taxed, and as long as Stanford acts like a nonprofit and like follows the nonprofit rules. But is that not profit? Like the thirty billion dollars that you don't spend? What what do you you know? Well, but, well, but it's, it's not it's not eventually. that we have it's 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 in it's a thirty it's not like we have a lump of cash that's thirty right, it's billion dollars. In, it's invested in, in right. all sorts of various things, but. It's income for the university every year. It's and like that's used to pay the, our professors and students who need. But it also aid. it grows every year, which means they're not right. spending all of the income. Exactly. So like some of it is saved because they have b- bigger projects that need to be done eventually. Or um, do they just want to hoard larger and larger piles of money? Like I don't know that they're ever. Looks like we have a cynic over here. <laughs> I, I just think it, it's a <laughs> ton of university. money that could be put to much better use. And I don't think that the the university would be any worse off if you took ten billion out of the third. You know. But then another thing, I'm not sure how big of a role this plays, but I know when people donate to nonprofits, a big thing is like that's tax deductible. 
Right. So maybe they right. would donate less if it was not tax deductible. Well, then maybe you you don't make Stanford not a nonprofit, but you just say nonprofits can't have bank accounts over twenty billion. You know, or if they do, we're going to tax it. You know, okay. it's still a nonprofit, but at that point, right. you're too profitable to really. Right. Another provision in the tax bill that doesn't affect us yet, but will affect us potentially, is they're taxing uh, graduate students. Yeah, most, that's crazy. Yeah, most graduate students get, I guess, like a stipend. They they don't pay tuition, or their tuition is like covered by a stipend from the university. And right. under this new tax bill, that would be considered income, and so it would then be taxed. Oh no. Um, right. I think that is actually one of the most criminal parts of this bill. Yeah. And we were we talked about this in a class I was in yesterday, um, and my professor, Mark Duggan, said that he, he thinks basically what will happen is uh, either the universities will just drop tuitions dramatically so that these students aren't paying the taxes, or the universities will pick up the tab and give these students larger stipends to account for the taxes. Um, but either way, the, basically the cost is going to fall on the universities. Which really sucks because grad students do important research. Right. I also think if you're going to treat the the money grad students get as income, right, and and basically treat them as employees of the university, then I feel like they should also be entitled to all the rights that employees of companies get, you know, the same health care benefits or, you know, rights to unionize, things like that, Um, which, you know, this tax bill does not do. It treats them as employees when it's convenient and, and not otherwise. Right. Yeah, bottom line is that it's not going to cause as much economic growth as Republicans hope it will. It will actually cost a trillion, add a trillion dollars to the deficit, and uh, it's kind of screwing over some students. So hopefully it doesn't pass. I'm not, like, since the Republicans control both, both the House and the Senate, I feel like at least some of it will pass. Um, hopefully not all of it in its entirety, though. There are a lot of differences between the bill the House passed and the, the current Right. version right. of the Senate bill, yeah. and so they will have to reconcile those in some way. I know one of the bills repeals the state and local tax deduction, and one doesn't, which is a huge difference. Right. So things things like that, I don't know how they're going to reconcile yeah. that. So there's, if you want the bill to fail, there, there's still hope in the Senate and the House disagreeing. Okay, so like I said earlier, we had a really good conversation with Stanford alum and current congressman, ranking member on the House Intel Committee, Democrat Adam Schiff, uh, one of the most vocal critics of President Trump since his election. And obviously, his ranking member of the Intel Committee has been relatively, or not relatively, very involved in the. Very high profile. We're involved very in, yeah, him. high profile and involved in the Russia investigation. Uh, probably see him seen him on like cnn all the time no big deal <laughs> um but uh it was really nice of him to come on the podcast and we had a great conversation so um yeah i think to start um <laughs> I, I think the most the biggest sort of russia related thing that i've i've followed recently is the the news that michael flynn's lawyers have i don't know the exact legal term but they ended their like cooperation pact with trump's lawyers um which is a sign that they are cooperating with Mueller in the investigation, right. um, which I think, it, you know, it, at least Michael Flynn, if, if he's cooperating, probably means he's got something to hide or he, you know, he broke some law and, and they're offering some sort of immunity, which means that there is probably something here. Um, yeah. Not not necessarily, but I think it definitely seems to legitimize this whole thing. Um, 
I think I think that's good. I, it, it's clear that Mueller is doing a really thorough investigation. I know last time on the podcast we talked about, um, you know, Paul Manafort being indicted, and now it, it looks like things are, are just taking another step forward. It's important to note too that the that being significant is not just per our analysis, but I think there was a broad conclusion among legal experts and people who had. I mean, I saw one piece written by someone who had worked with Bob Mueller before and basically said as a prosecutor, as an attorney, as someone who's worked with Bob Mueller, I can tell you that this, you know what I mean? Like there was this sort of intellectual consensus around people who really know what they're talking about, that this was a a clear sign that was indicative of uh, something significant. Yeah. And um, I actually just found out that the grand, there was supposed to be um, a grand jury testimony linked to um, Flynn. And like that has been postponed, like the whole testimony um, until later. And people think that's because of like his, Michael Flynn is now communicating more with the government and so, sort of like siding, I guess, more with them than Trump's people. Yeah. All very exciting Stuff's stuff. happening. But uh, no one knows more than Congressman Adam Schiff, who. Uh, <laughs> we'll hear from him now. Hear from him now. <laughs> All right. So again, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Stanford Politics Podcast. You're a proud Stanford alum, so we're really thrilled to have you with us. Um, so we'll just get started, and uh, we want to first ask you a quick question uh, about something that's been in the news a lot lately. So President Trump reportedly met with President Vladimir Putin on his recent trip to Asia, and he again asked him about Russia's meddling and the 2016 election. So, what do you make of Trump's refusal, uh, repeated refusal, to rebuke Putin and really firmly take the side of the U.S. intelligence agencies? Well, sadly, we really don't know what happened at the latest meeting between the president and Putin. Uh, the president says he raised the issue. Uh, Putin's representatives say he didn't. Now, normally, it would be easy to decide, okay, who's telling the truth here? But the president has so often dissembled about his interactions with the Russians it's very hard to be sure. Uh, and indeed, what he did say about that meeting, uh, he later contradicted uh, in the sense that he initially said that Putin maintained his innocence and that he found he, uh, our president, found that uh, it was insulting to Putin to be asked about this and uh, and wouldn't it be much better to have a good relationship with the Russians? Uh, and by the way, those people who say that he did it are a bunch of political hacks, namely... <laughs> former CIA Director Brennan and former DNI Clapper, um, Comey, uh, among others. Uh, this, you know, basically isn't putting America first at all. It's putting the president's very naked self-interest first uh, and demeaning to our intelligence agencies uh, and has the effect of really weakening our standing around the world. So um, not much to show for at least that one high-level meeting. Right, right. Um, so another question we have is that the atten- intelligence consensus seems to be that Russia will likely try to meddle in our elections again in some way, namely the 2018 elections or um, more local elections. What can you tell us about how we're prepared or working to prepare to deal with that threat? That's a very important question. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, if you were watching Jeff Sessions testify yesterday, you would have seen my colleague Brad Schneider Uh, asked that very question, and the Attorney General's answer was quite uh, mystifying, which was, you know, that's a good question, and I don't really know. Uh, I'll have to get back to you. The fact that the Attorney General of the United States 
wouldn't be able to tell the Congress what the Justice Department, among others, are doing to protect ourselves uh, from the next Russian uh, attack on our democracy uh, is uh, pretty shocking. Um, now, part of the problem is that he works in an administration in which the president himself has difficulty acknowledging that the Russians even did this. Uh, and probably the single most important step we can take to preparing ourselves in the future is to forge a bipartisan and national consensus that no matter who it helps or hurts, if the Russians or any other foreign party intervene in our elections, they will be roundly repudiated. No one will willfully accept their help. We didn't have that consensus last time, and it was devastating. We darn well better have it next time. But uh, again, the administration isn't doing uh, anything at all to help further the development of that consensus. Uh, I think we're marginally better prepared uh, in the sense that our social media companies now know better what to look for. Our intelligence agencies are very much on the lookout uh, for Russian interference. Um, our local elections officials, I think, are forewarned, uh, and more are adopting a backup uh, paper trail. But there's still a lot more that needs to be done. So uh, that's a good segue to another question that we had had wanted to ask you, which is: so you're representative from California, um, and California is home to so many of these, you know, social media tech companies that. As time goes on, we're seeing played a relatively large role, you know, in delivering so much of this quote-unquote fake news, or um, you know, these social media Twitter bots that are proven to be Russian agents. Um, how do you think those companies need to take more responsibility in their role in, in making all this happen? And what do you think they, uh, what step, what what steps do you think they need to take in the, take in the future to to uh, to prevent that from happening again? We got a very graphic illustration of just how contemporary this problem is and how it didn't go away with the election. Uh, during the hearing with the social media companies uh, in the House Intelligence Committee, um, there was a story that rose to the top of the Twitter feed. This was, I think, the day after the terrorist attack in New York uh, that basically said that uh, the mayor of New York um, had been warned by an imam uh, that the attack was coming and did nothing about it. Now, this was a completely fallacious uh, story, but nonetheless, it rose to the top of the Twitter feed, uh, and it couldn't have been a more graphic example of how uh, the companies need to get a better handle on the propagation of this uh, damaging and false information on their platforms. Uh, now, one issue is the foreign exploitation of those platforms to push misinformation or to try to influence uh, our elections. That's a big problem. But then there's also, uh, I think, a very significant issue of what role do the companies have uh, in making sure that the effect of their platforms, not the intention, but the effect, may be to further balkanize our society by stovepiping the information that we get uh, such that uh, what shows up in our feeds is not what's necessarily true uh, or what's necessarily important, but uh, but merely information that keeps us using the platform, keeps our eyeballs on the platform for longer and longer periods of time, uh, but may have the effect of showing us what we want to see um, and only further balkanizing um, our society. So I think these are very important questions uh, that we're only starting to ask. Um, I think the, the companies themselves have a societal obligation, uh, and the Congress has an obligation to do oversight and determine... Uh, what is capable of uh, regulation, what is um, necessary to regulate. We don't want to do harm to the industry. Uh, we need them to be successful. Uh, 
but I think we know at least at this point that we need to mandate uh, political advertising has to carry a disclaimer, like political advertising uh, in newspapers, on broadcast uh, TV. No reason we should treat social media at this point any differently. Right. Uh, so as Stanford students and as just like informed members of society, what can we be doing on social media to, to help combat uh, this spread? And, and like what can we do as Stanford students in general to, to make our politics better moving forward? Well, Stanford is, uh, you know, and, and students are in a wonderful position uh, both to help be a fact squad uh, when you see uh, fake news uh, come uh, into the, the uh, social media sphere uh, to help uh, point that out to people and, uh, and in effect, uh, be a fast uh, and true truth squad. But I think also, given that Stanford is such a pipeline into these uh, incredible companies, uh, Stanford students can you know, bring the, the ethos with them that there's a societal obligation here um, and that we need to examine the effect of the algorithms that the companies use to, maximizing, uh, to maximize uh, advertising revenue and what effect does it have on society and are there other ways, better ways, and what is their role now given that a majority of Americans get their news from social media. Uh, that's a very different news landscape than we had when I was a Stanford student, I remember rushing back to the dormitory, I lived in, AT, in ATO at the time, to see Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. Uh, that was a time when there was a much broader set of objective facts that the country was in agreement on. And we had different opinions about how to act on those facts, but now um, people don't even agree on the basic underlying facts. And a lot of the reason why is how we get our information. I like that. Maybe we'll have to form a campus organization called the Truth Squad. Um, so, so shifting a little bit away from Russia and, and that narrative, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, there's this narrative in politics that seems to be, you know, focused around this big cultural disconnect that, and I think this is, you know, exacerbated likely in some degree by the media, but that there's this massive cultural disconnect between sort of coastal populations like the one you represent down in Southern California and more conservative citizens in middle America. Do you feel that in the Congress with your fellow representatives and your colleagues who are from those parts of the country versus, you know, the part of the country that you represent? Do you feel that strongly? And if not, um, you know, what do you, what do you think is going on? You know, there certainly are, you know, very profound divisions in the country, uh, not only geographic, but even within communities. Uh, communities are often balkanized uh, by political opinion. And I think we need to do what we can to break down those barriers. I think it's enormously important for my party in particular to try to make uh, inroads throughout the country um, if we're going to have a change uh, in the composition of the Congress and in the policies of the country. Uh, and that means competing everywhere, which means understanding people everywhere. Um, I do think that in uh, distressed communities, around the country, uh, we have an obligation to figure out how to make them successful, how to work with them uh, so that their kids have good job opportunities, that they don't have to get up and leave and consider that their communities uh, have no future. Uh, what we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years is that we've created a lot of new wealth in the country and a lot of new jobs, but we haven't created them everywhere, and not everyone has enjoyed the increase in the wealth of the country. Um, and so I think to be competitive and to be able to um, 
be persuasive in these parts of the country that have not grown with the economy. Uh, we're going to need to address uh, some of these geographic disparities. Uh, and I think if we can do that, we can break down some of those barriers. Um, but uh, I don't think we should view the country as irreconcilably divided. Uh, I don't think we should merely shoot to win elections by 51% of the vote. I think we ought to, my party ought to uh, shoot to be competitive everywhere, uh, meet the needs of people in all 50 states. And and I think if we make that effort, uh, we can break down a lot of uh, these divisions between our communities and and the cultural divide. Good insights. So sort of jumping off of that, what do you see as like state's role, uh, specifically California's role, in, in working with or against this administration? There's been a lot of governors and mayors who are taking steps to, to actively resist Trump. And as a representative from California, what do you see as California's role in that? I think California has a really pivotal role to play right now. Um, as we've seen the president essentially renounce American leadership uh, in area after area, and probably the most pronounced has been on climate, We've seen states and governors and legislatures and local officials step into the void. Um, Jerry Brown is now the global leader on climate change. Uh, He has stepped into the role of the President of the United States, and thank goodness he has. Um, I think the message that he's delivering, along with other governors, is um, the President of the United States may have withdrawn from the Paris Accords, but we're not withdrawing. In fact, we're going to do better. Uh, The states are going to do better than we would have... um, even in the accord. And that's an important message for the rest of the world to hear. Uh, You know, California has has been the heart of the resistance, uh, but it's also been the the soul of our national values at a time where we don't see them exhibited in the White House. So when the president uh, lauds the anti-drug effort in the Philippines, which is a campaign of mass extrajudicial killing, when he makes it clear that human rights are no longer a priority for the United States, you have people in the Congress and around the country, and many of them in California, who are stepping up and saying, no, human rights are still a top priority for the United States of America. The promotion of democracy is still a top priority, and we're going to speak out uh, on this, and we're going to carry the torch. As long as that torch is absent from the White House, we're going to carry it in California. Great. So, Congressman, to wrap up, we want to ask you a few more lighthearted questions about your time here at Stanford. Um, so first, can you tell us what freshman dorm you lived in? I lived in Madeira in Wilbur, which I think is now the Asian theme house. Oh, oh, uh, and it was a fantastic experience. Um, I think freshman year was probably my favorite year in college because everything seemed so new and it was wonderful. Um, you know, living in a freshman dorm and getting to meet people from all over the country, it was just a fantastic experience. I actually live in Wilbur right now, which is, and I totally agree, it's a great time. Um, so my second question is, how badly do you think Stanford is going to beat Cal this Saturday on the, at the big game? Oh, I think it's, we're just going to crush them. <laughs> and, That's what uh, I like to hear. It, it couldn't happen to a nicer team. Uh, my brother went to Cal, and so we've long had this uh, Stanford-Cal rivalry. Um, and, uh, and I have enjoyed lording over him year after year uh, as Stanford has uh, run rings around Cal, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and our, our last question for you today is, what is your favorite spot on campus? 
Wow, that's a great question. You know, I have to say, because my freshman dorm experience was such a great one, that when I come back for reunions and whatnot, I like to go back to the freshman dorm and and just, you know, look at the dorm and remember uh, all the wonderful uh, memories that I have from that year and transport myself back for a short instant to convince myself I'm still a, a student at Stanford and this has all been a rather long, strange dream, uh, but I'm still a freshman in college. Uh, so, I, you know, I love going back to Madeira. Um, I'm a little heartbroken, frankly, that ugly the undergraduate library is gone because uh, I like that old place, too. Um, but I, I just love walking around. I like going to the bookstore and buying Stanford gear. It's just great all around. Sure. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are really flattered that you gave us a little piece of your day. Uh, we're big fans and admire the work you do for our country, for the state of California. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Congressman. Take care.